How many of you were here during the Ruth series? Carol, a few. It was a memorable series for me, and uh, it was a lot like the Job series that I did. It's like four or five Sundays, one, four I guess, one for each chapter. And and Ruth is a sad book. It's a it's a book of of uh, what I would call frowning providences until the end, when God turns it around. The hymn is God moves in a mysterious way. I'll quote a few verses. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Um, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And then here comes a verse that, lo and behold, is missing from our, our text of this hymn in, in this book. It's number 73 if you want to go look at it. But this verse, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And I see these lessons on the providence of God as an attempt to interpret that verse, kind of. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I would like to build a people of God who can talk like that and know what they mean. In fact, one of my little sub-goals in a, in a series like this is to affect the vocabulary of the church. My guess is most of you don't, don't use the word providence very much in your vocabulary. It's, a, it's almost except for the fact that there are schools named this, and so there are probably cheers that include providence. Give me a P, give me an R maybe, kind of cheers. It's probably not something that you, you use. And I would like to so teach and reveal this scriptural truth to you that, that when you're talking with your children, when you're talking with a friend, you say things like, when they ask, uh, I haven't seen you for a year and you go to a class reunion and, and your baby died last year, born and lived two hours and died, and they would say, how are you doing? And you would say, God has dealt us some hard providences this year. Instead of saying, you know, we had some bad luck, the word luck creeps into our vocabulary when most of us don't believe in it. But we don't have anything to put in its place. We don't know how to talk about untoward, unsavory, hard events that are tragic and painful when we believe in the sovereignty of God and this whole series is an attempt to give you a way to talk about those and to give you an understanding of those blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain great great hymn number 73 in the book underneath the pew in front of you Let's pray. Father in heaven, everybody in this room has been dealt some hard providences. Frowning providences from time to time have been what they've seen and only faith could grasp the smiling face of a loving and disciplining father. But Lord, I pray that you would enable us to grasp the glory of your providence in these weeks together. I pray that this introductory night, even in itself, would be mightily encouraging, mightily stabilizing in our lives so that we're not easily blown over by what life deals us. I pray against a spirit of confusion. Satan would like to really mix us up about these things. And I ask that you would Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
And I pray for a spirit of truth to hold sway here in this room now. And for wonderful heart openings to come and for lights to go on and things to click so that some will look back upon tonight as a, an immeasurable moment in which discoveries were made that transformed the way some look at the world and live their lives. And so may the spin-off of this night be for your glory and for the salvation of the lost and for the strengthening and the joy of your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm tempted to, uh, to read you some quotes from Spurgeon just right off the bat in a sermon that he preached on the providence of God, but I, I'm going to try to resist and see if I can fit it in where it belongs. I've got overheads and uh, I have an outline and how far we'll get, I don't know. We can go till about five of eight. I, I won't go any longer than that. Uh, if we don't get through all of them tonight, we will pick it up next week where we leave off. There's a lot of introductory stuff tonight and not as many biblical texts, but starting next week, we'll deal almost entirely with biblical texts coming at this thing of the province of God from a lot of different sides. But you'll see where we're going to go as I get in. This is excerpts from this past week's Star article. And I couldn't do any better in trying to help you get a handle on the word providence than to do it this way. The word providence is striking. It comes from the word provide. You can all see that. Provide. Providence. Which has two parts. Pro, Latin for forward or in front of or on behalf of, like pro-life. And proactive would be two different meanings of pro, one moving ahead and the other on behalf of. And, and vide, provide, from videre, to see in Latin. So you might think that provide would mean to see forward or to foresee, but it doesn't. It means to supply what is needed, provide something, to give sustenance or support. And so the noun providence, providence, has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining the and governing the universe by God. It's really interesting to me that um, if you look up providence in in the Webster's Dictionary, the one I have, red one, um, it's a religious word. I mean, they have. Definition number three is given some kind of wider meaning, but the first two definitions have to do with God. Now, that's interesting that a word exists to describe a way of looking at the universe which is Godward. So the very existence of the word is a testimony to broad convictions about God behind the universe. I find that very remarkable. Because usually, religious language is borrowed from outside, and then you, you adapt it to spiritual things. And I don't know the whole etymology and history of that word, but it's really interesting to think about. Now, I think there's a linguistic reason and a theological reason for why provide means supply rather than foresee. Here's a linguistic thought. Linguistically, pro means on behalf of as well as forward. So provide can mean to see, vide, on behalf of. We say in English, I'll see to that. If you just switch that around, to see, and you create it, we could create a new word, to see, which would mean see to something, which is what provide is. That's what it is, to see. Um, in other words, seeing something with a, with a purpose is to make provision for what you see. 
seeing to something is acting on behalf of something. It is providing. Thus, providence is the act of God's seeing to the universe. I'll see to that. I love that. God simply says, if we raise questions about the universe, where did it come from? How does it stay in existence? How does it run? Why does it behave the way it behaves? Will it last? God answers all those questions with, I'll see to that. And that's providence. Now, theologically, more important, I think, because I'm not really sure about this. I am not a linguist. I don't know that I've got it exactly right here. But I just find all this probable. I haven't done any extensive linguistic study of the word. If you do that and you find other reasons beside what I've seen, tell me about them so I won't make this mistake again. This one I know, though, from the Bible. Um, theologically, there's a reason why seeing two means providing four. Uh, let's, let's go to the Bible here. I've got it on the overhead. If you want to look in your Bible, you can, but you can probably read it just as well here. I want to show you from Genesis 22 a theological reason why seeing has come to mean providing when it refers to God. Let's just go ahead. This is a little long, but I think it'll be good to get the story in our minds. It's worth reading anyway because it's scripture now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him Abraham and he said here I am and he said take now your son your only son which you love Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you now there's a frowning providence so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him and on the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance and Abraham said to his son stay here with the donkey Wait, I said it wrong he said to his young men stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you Hebrews makes a lot out of that. We'll return. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb of the burnt offering. Now, let's stop there. There's nothing you can do about this fact. But in Hebrew, this is very simply, without any adornment, God will see. It's the word see, ro-a, in Hebrew. It's, it's, it's the simple word see, nothing fancy or theological about it. It's used dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament for simply see. God will see for himself the Lamb. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay him. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do no nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of the sun. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Translation, literally, the Lord sees. The Lord will see. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. Now, theologically, as you reflect on that, why 
the word see would be used to mean, I think this is a good translation, this is not a bad translation, would be used to mean provide. I suggested in the Star article, see if I wrote it here on the overhead, yeah. I think the deepest answer is that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without his sustaining it. He's never a mere spectator. Never, never. He's never just watching things and having nothing to do with them. Wherever God is looking, he is acting. He may not be acting in the same way. That's something we're going to have to tackle, whether God's action in the world at any given time and place is the same as it is in other times and places. But I am asserting here at the outset my belief that God is always acting when he's seeing. If God perceives, he at least in some sense performs. If he inspects, he effects. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why the word providence, providence, see, to or see on behalf of does not merely mean know before or see before foreknowledge but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe when God sees he sees too pro by his seeing is always with a view to doing where he patrols he controls so God's providence is his seeing too the universe. Now, before I go on, do you want to ask for any kind of clarification? There are a thousand questions about implication and how can these things be, but if I've said anything that just doesn't make sense, that would be, this would be a good time to ask that. Or if you see an implication there that you'd like to just spin off and I can say we'll deal with that later, that would be okay too. Good question. That's a very good question. Morris is asking, is this peculiar use of the word see ever used when a human being is doing it? I don't know. I will have to get out my computer and do some, some work on row A to see whether whether it's uh, ever translated provide or has that meaning. Good question. The implication, I suppose, being that uh, if it does, you wouldn't want to read too much in here. These are theological reflections. I'm not, I'm not saying that when Moses wrote those 14 verses, he was thinking all of this. Uh, if I would hope that if I asked him, why did you use the word see? He says, where's the lamb? And you said, God will see the lamb. Why did you say that? I think he might reflect something like I've just said. But I, I don't know for sure. My belief in providence is not rooted in that particular use. Go ahead. Now there's a, and and I, it probably does. But I'm going to write that question down here. Does Hebrew have, have a, a good word that could have been used there? Um, there are really interesting implications of these kinds of questions because, for example, in Hebrew, um, there is no word for have. Things are always to somebody. Um, and there are interesting theological speculations I'm tempted to do for a people ruled by God who would never say anything is they, they, they wouldn't maybe have a concept of have it, it's all God's and this part of God's is to me and this part of God's is to you that's, that's speculative too but I haven't done the research does Hebrew have a word for supply okay now what I want to do 
is give you a little foretaste of, of what I foresee in the next several weeks or through the fall as long as God gives us energy and time. Questions we will try to face in the coming weeks. So if they have already emerged in your mind, you'll hope that you'll get to them, Lord willing. How detailed is God's involvement and control? In other words, does he set the universe in motion and intervene here and there to block and to stop? And then, but basically, 85% of the time, 90% of the time, it's, it's hands off and things are kind of running by laws of physics and so on. Uh, does he see to moral evil? If so, is his involvement with moral evil the same as his involvement with moral good? Does he see to natural calamities like earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and plague? Or we could bring it close to home. Babies born blind. Babies with livers outside their stomachs. Outside their body. Does he see to that? If so, how? Does he see to national, international affairs? What's the measure of his control over nations? Does he see to personal and family matters down to the details of our lives, both painful and pleasant? Does he foreknow all things? If so, is his foreknowledge infallible? If so, on what is his knowledge based? And does it imply that things could not be otherwise? Seven, does God's foreknowledge and providence make prayer pointless? Eight, does God's providence and rule make human choice meaningless? Does it mean that all our choices are governed by God and that we cannot be blamed or rewarded for the bad and good we do? What is the difference between providence and fatalism? Does this truth of providence bring joy. So those are uh, questions that if we tackle them, <laughs> it will be amazing. And if we can resolve them, it will be more amazing because they have bent the minds of better people than I over the centuries. But I think they are. They're the kinds of questions that if you get into a conversation with a thoughtful unbeliever trying to commend your faith to them and tell them a few things you believe, it won't be long until you're telling them you believe God is strong and wise and loving, and they'll throw back at you half a dozen contradictions between those three things in the world. And uh, we, just, we may not be able to persuade them, but we need an intelligible response so that our consciences are clear that we're not talking gibberish when we say God is love and that he rules the world of absolutely horrid pain. I was just talking to Dr. Brushhaber, the president of Bethel, today. We had lunch together, and uh, his mother passed away about a month ago. And he said, we talked about these kinds of transitions of nursing home and getting old and difficult. He's an only child and far away from California where they lived and being on the phone and his dad is 80-something. And uh, he said she was just in horrendous pain for the last months of her life. They tried a, different kinds of spinal things that didn't work and finally they put a self-administering morphine thing in her side and that made her so groggy that she couldn't be herself and and so I, I don't, uh, you know, say lightly, say less lightly today than 15, 20 years ago that, that providence means he was seeing to that in some way. Why concern ourselves with the historic confessions of... Um, faith 
if Scripture is our final authority. Now, the reason I'm, this is coming out of nowhere as far as you're concerned, but let me tell you why I'm asking this question. I have here the next two or three overheads are um, historic statements of what providence means from the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Standards. Some of you never heard of any of those, and that's okay. You, you can be a good Christian without having ever heard of any of those. However, I, I'm going to introduce you to them, and as I was typing this up this afternoon, I thought, well, they would probably ask, why are you doing this? You know, why don't you just get to the Bible? We're Baptists, and Baptists aren't historically very creedal, and, and, uh, and we believe the Bible is our final authority, so get to the Bible. Don't give us Westminster Catechism and Heidelberg Catechism. So why am I doing this? Why do I read those things? Why, why do I take out a big fat book and look up providence in the index and find it and study it in what somebody else thought about it rather than going right to the Bible? Why do I do that? So I thought, this, this is helpful. We need to think about why that is. And I've got four reasons here. And I'll give them to you and then you can tell me what you think. Reason number one. Because it, all of these documents I'm going to read from are from the 16th century. We live in the 20th century and almost in the 21st century, so that's, what, five, five centuries away, almost. That's a long time. Because it helps rescue us from the pitfalls of, I get this phrase from C.S. Lewis, chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is thinking that your era has the last word and is smarter than every other era. And so if you see things the way your, your contemporaries see them, you see them right. That's snobbery. That's chronological snobbery. Just like ethnocentricity would be to say white people, uh, in the way we do things in the West or in America, we see things right. And if you have a black perspective or a yellow perspective or a red perspective or a different kind of ethnic perspective, yours is by definition not ours and therefore not as good. That's snobbery. That's bad. We all read scripture through a lens shaped by our time and culture. Reading what others saw in scripture in another time and culture can reveal blind spots that we have and open us to things we totally missed. So there's reason number one. I know that I am prone to see things through 20th century lens, Baptist lens, uh, Piper theology lens, rich lens, English lens. I mean, one is tempted sometimes to think that we could not have any objectivity at all, though I think the whole Bible is premised on the truth that you can see truth. However, it does assume humility, and humility is the opposite of chronological snobbery, and one manifestation of humility, which is number two, is to go outside your own little circle. It is presumptuous to assume that we can see all we need to see in Scripture without the help of others. So just imagine. What was I reading just recently or talking with somebody? Oh, it was Abraham. We, we were talking about um, this century and what it was like at the beginning of this century, since we're getting near the end, and what had not been invented. And the, it's incredible. I mean, life for the first 10,000 years of humanity or whatever it has been uh, was almost the same until 100 years ago. And then boom, cars and airplanes and electricity and telephones and radios and televisions and computers and the life we know today is absolutely, stunningly, incredibly different from almost all of human history prior to 100 years ago. Now, either that, that will make us cocky and say, why in the world didn't Plato think of the computer? Which is a good question, and I think there's some theological reasons for it, but, but if you ask that with a sense of Plato doesn't have anything to teach you, or... 
John Calvin or Luther or Jonathan Edwards because they lived in the dark ages of pre-scientific, pre-technological times. That would be snobbery, it would lack humility, and it's, of course, irrational because the kinds of things we're dealing with here. I, I took down off my computer the other day a excerpt from, I think it was the Reuter News Service of a British computer analyst about the global village and he said if if uh, if the world is a global village the internet is the red light district so having achieved the internet says zilch about our capacities to understand right and wrong and to discern good from evil and to make progress in moral dimensions. Reason number three, because the writers of the historic confessions were more steeped in scripture than we are, and they devoted years to Bible study that we haven't. And I say we, I think I can say that safely in this room, that those fellows who gathered together to write the Westminster Standards and worked on them for about eight years, I think, knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They had been immersed in the Bible. When I read the Bible, I've studied the Bible for a long time. I read certain parts of the Old Testament, I feel like a stranger in them still. I ain't figuring out how this relates. And how much more ordinary lay people who haven't devoted a lifetime to study. We would be foolish to think that our understanding of Scripture cannot benefit from those who have spent so much more time and effort in the wide range of biblical truth than we have. And finally, because the body of Christ is transgenerational. You ever thought about this? The body of Christ is transgenerational, meaning some of it is dead and some of it is alive and some of it is not born yet. And the dead people are in heaven and thank God, a lot of those dead saints left behind writings. So if you care about saying the hand cannot say to the eye, I have no need of you, you can't say that about the past either. The glory of writing is that it enables us to hear the teaching of Christian teachers from centuries ago. Thus we benefit from the larger body of Christ, not just that segment of the body that exists today. And I'm not at all sure the segment of the body of Christ that lives today understands the Bible better than the segment that lived in the 16th century. Not at all. And, right, there is no necessary correlation between advance in technological finesse and insight into the way providence works, natural providence, and increase in understanding of Scripture. There's no correlation. Because as Randall's pointing out, the knowledge necessary to interpret the Bible may have made some advances. Text-critical advances would probably be the most significant. And some archaeological observations that would help define certain words and so on. But by and large, we're not far ahead of where they were there. Good observation. Any comments, other comments or observations about my rationale for why I'm going to take you through some historic confessions on this matter. I, I hope that you believe in history. I hope that you believe in history because without history, we're just doomed to make all the same mistakes all over again and again and again. And that applies at, at every level. You know, you can define history at the place where you work. Suppose you work in a company downtown or uh, as a carpenter somewhere. And you say, I don't believe in history. And if you mean that literally, then you, you won't ever be an apprentice because you won't ever want to benefit from what this fellow learned for 25 years before you as to how to do carpentry or how to do brick mason or how to do nursing or how to do anything. History is simply the accumulated wisdom of the past and we're totally dependent on it. So be lovers of history. All right. Insights from the Confessions of Faith on the definition, what is providence? Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, a catechism designed to establish the Reformed faith 
When I say reformed faith, I know that's not a, a trade term for most. Um, it's simply the, the big picture of the Christian faith that came out of the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. And they had so many precious, deep, profound things in common that what separated them can be put to the side and that center thing can be called the reformed faith. In Heidelberg, Germany, but which attained widespread use and was affirmed at the Synod of Dort as one of the reliable testimonies of the reformed faith. What then is the providence of God? It is the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand. The Heidelberg Catechism, by the way, as I've read it, I haven't, I haven't studied it in great detail, has a real tangible concreteness about it that sets it off from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster is bigger and more thorough than Westminster Catechism. But, you know, to have herbs and grass and rain and drought, this is good. All right, the Belgic Confession. Now what, I'm just introducing you to definitions. What we'll do in the weeks to come is, is unpack those definitions, see if they're biblical, find texts. In fact, we'll do that a little bit tonight if we, if we have time. The Belgic Confession... 1561, composed for the churches in Flanders and the Netherlands and adopted by the Reformed Synod of Emden in 1571 and the National Synod of Dort in 1619. What is it? What is providence? We believe that the same God, after he had created all things, did not forsake them. So let me stop right there. Providence is usually in theological thinking is put after the doctrine of creation. So all that was involved in bringing the universe into being as it is, is creation. And then all of God's involvement with it, sustaining of it, guiding it, and so on, that's providence. That's why these two are coming like this. Did not forsake them or give them up to fortune, luck, or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. You can imagine that when they were writing this, at that point, hours, days, and weeks were perhaps spent over what word to use there. Permission, ordination, cause, and they chose, they didn't write English, but... This is the best we come over. Appointment. Nevertheless, God is neither the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. And if you're reading sharply, you would add there, and he appointed. So he is not the author of what he appoints. If this is the correct definition. Reflects reality. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when the devil and wicked men act unjustly. And as to what he doth, surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire into it further than our capacity will admit of, but with the greatest humility and reverence adore the righteous judgments of God which are hid from us, contending our, contenting ourselves that we are disciples of Christ to learn only those things which he has revealed to us in his word without transgressing these limits. 
In other words, there may be questions you have that God does not answer yet in this world concerning the difficulty of these things like how can you be the appointer of sin and not the author of sin? Or what do you even mean by saying that? Now, now lest you are saying in your mind right now, well, that just logically can't be. What, what I want to characterize me, the goal, whether I pull it off, God will judge. What I want to characterize me and you is that we take Scripture and try to be honest and fair with it as we read it. And if it looks to cause some problems for our so-called worldview or logic, um, we suspend judgment and say, but it's there. It's there. And this is here. And if I can't pull those together, I'm going to not condemn Scripture. Now, here's... Here would be just a text for you to keep before your mind. The, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus was planned from eternity. At least it was planned from 700 years before because Isaiah 53 describes it in some detail. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him, Isaiah 53. He could not have been bruised according to Scripture without sin. Every pound on the nail was sin. Every thrust of the sword was sin. The thorns pushed into his head was sin. The spit in his face was sin. The shouting mobs crucify him was sin. And all of that was the design, or to use this word, appointment of a sovereign God to bring about our redemption. So right at the very... It's not, this is not on the periphery of our religion at the very center of our faith, the cross of our Lord Jesus, is this incredible problem. How can God appoint that which does not make sinner of him? And that we will tackle. We will tackle. But hold those things in suspension if you cannot put them together. Westminster Larger Catechism. Very, very famous catechism, the most famous probably. It's the one that begins with the question um, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to most of you could finish it. What? Glorify him and enjoy him forever. Along with the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Shorter Catechism this larger catechism was prepared by the Westminster Assembly, a group of Calvinistic and Puritan pastors and theologians meeting between 1643 and 1652, so about nine or ten years. These Westminster standards have been affirmed by most Presbyterian and Reformed bodies as the historic view of, the Reformed, Christ of Reformed Christianity and have been adapted by major groups of Baptists as well. I put that in here just because we are Baptists. For example, Keech's Catechism which we have adapted for Bethlehem's use. So if you go up in the file cabinets upstairs and look under catechism, probably, you'll find Bethlehem's catechism. And inside, I simply say, I adapted this from Keech's catechism. And Keech's catechism is, is a very lightly edited Westminster Shorter catechism, which is a very, uh, I mean, it's, it's just an editing of the larger catechism. So when I say Reformed and especially Presbyterian, uh, don't think that Baptists have historically believed anything very different. We just are stuck on this issue of baptism. That's the main difference between us and the Reformers or the Reformed people here. Okay, what's the answer? What are the works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures. Now, that's very awkward grammar. It looks like a word's missing, doesn't it? Not. A word's not missing. These two ing words are, are nouns, and these are adjectives defining these two nouns. 
He is wholly preserving, he is wholly governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. The numbers are footnotes where they give long lists of text to support these. That will come later. Insights from the Confession of Faith, why should we study the doctrine of providence? They ask that question in a couple of these. The Belgic Confession, this is a beautiful, beautiful paragraph, I think. It really strengthens my faith. This doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation. Since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father, who watches over us with paternal care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father, in whom we do entirely trust being persuaded that he so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without his will and permission, they cannot hurt us. Oh, that's great. If that's the fabric of your life, you will be a strong person in the midst of everything. It is rich. It is so rich. It's Romans eight twenty-eight in the context of Romans 8. And therefore we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God regards nothing but leaves all things to chance. Yes, uh, I thought I would go ahead and include that for you. One more. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 28. Why should we study this? That we may be patient in adversity as opposed to becoming bitter and raising our anger at God, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. That is, a, that, is a, that asks a lot of you. That asks a lot of your faith. It really does. When, when tragedy comes, it really does. Randall. Well, it, it's not. If you couldn't hear, Randall was referring to a situation where he preached a while back, where a grandfather had just driven a tractor over his grandson and killed him. And, uh, and his point was, people really do believe this? Bob. They had no doctors to help them with their incredible pains. The stories of, of what they dealt with. I read a, a biography of Martin Luther this past summer on vacation because I'm going to speak on Luther next pastor's conference. And there was a point at which he had a gallstone or a, or a kidney stone. Well... He, he, he just swelled up like, like a balloon, he said. And every horrible procedure imaginable was used and, and uh, he prepared to die and the pain was incredible and, and it passed and he said he almost drowned in his own urine. <laughs> but just think of what they had to deal with. And they, they were the ones who crafted these, these uh, incredibly strong statements that... Uh, Nothing can move without the Father's, without the Father's will. Verna, you had your hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, and we will wrestle with the reality of blameworthiness and lack of blameworthiness in an act in spite of the fact that God is involved in both of those acts. Okay, we got a few more minutes. Go ahead. Oh, yes. Let me, let me, let me just reinforce that. Um, you know that John and Diane Knight 
had their baby Paul with no eyes in July. And I met Paul when I came back from vacation. You prayed for him while I was gone. And he has two little shut eyes and there's nothing under there but skin. And they're trying to do some surgery. I mean, figure out the kind of surgery that needs to be done so that the face is preserved. And he's a happy little boy. And he wrote me a, John did, he wrote me a note a couple of weeks ago. How can I show Christ, a big banner, to the doctors? We're going from specialist to specialist, and I'm jealous for my boy, and so I query these doctors, and sometimes they get upset at me that I'm not taking their word for it because I'm so concerned about his future. How can I show Christ to them, he asked me. <laughs> well, I gave him several answers, but my number one answer was, um, just keep believing what you already are so manifestly believing. Keep living in the confidence, the joy, the peace, the remarkable submission to this frowning providence that you already do, and it will be seen. It will be seen. So you're right. Texts on the sustaining providence of God. So um, this definition right here from Wayne Grudem. By the way, if you want to, if theology sort of grips you and you say, wow, this is interesting stuff. And you want to buy a theology book, a big fat theology book? I recommend, and you want it to be up to date rather than old-fashioned language, I recommend Wayne's, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. just came out a year ago. I think we've got some. 1,100 pages, probably cost you 40 bucks. And it'll have in it something helpful on just about everything you can think about in relation to Bible and God and the world. And uh, I... I would like to see Wayne's Theology in every home in this church as a reference book because the index is as long as a book and therefore you can find anything you want in it. You know, it's not the kind of book you read straight through unless you are unusual, but it, it is the kind of book that you would, you would take down. Like if you went home tonight and you were just, your mind were reading, oh, man, I, where are the verses that say this? You go to that book and look Providence up and lo and behold, there's... 30 pages on it, which I read and got this definition from. We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, and two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act the way they do, and three, directing them to fulfill their purpose. So I'm taking the first one, um, maintaining their, their uh, properties, calling it sustaining, and just going to show you the verses here. Um, so there are three categories of, of providence, uh, showing the sustaining providence, uh, showing the cooperating, concurring providence of God in all actions, and showing the guiding. So here's, here's uh, two texts on sustaining. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, there's creation, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things. This is the Greek, pharaon, tapanta. This simple word, bearing. He bears them. You bear something on your back. You bear something in your arms. He upholds, he bears all things by the word of his power. That is an awesome statement. And it should make us worship. If I was a worship leader and I knew how to play that piano or sing a song, uh, this kind of statement about the Lord Jesus, that he, by his word, holds this speaker stand in existence and my shirt and my body and your body and my thought processes and all that we know of created reality is there because he keeps saying, be there. And if he stopped saying, be there, it wouldn't be there. Ch Chesterton says, Chesterton is no theologian, he's not a big on doctrine, he's no stretch of the imagination reformed, but he's a great 
seer of things, and he said the difference between adults and children is that adults get tired of things, and children say, do it again, do it again, do it again, forever and ever and ever. He said, if we could stay childlike, we would look at the rising sun and we would say, my God, he did it again. But, but we're so naturalistic that we know, we know the laws, we know gravitation, and you know. But we ought to look at it. I mean, if you believe the doctrine of providence, if you believe this sentence, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, and you walk out tonight and if, if there's stars out tonight, you should say, did it again. He did it again. He put them up there again. Why? Why would he do that? To declare his glory. And then Colossians. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Oh, I would like to have Paul here to query him about what, what all was in his mind when he said that. Because he didn't know anything about molecules. Um, but all things, he said, hold together because of the work of Christ. So he is the sustainer, the holder together of all things. Here's another way of saying it. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times. Now, there's a kind of providence that I'm not even going into right now. And their boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, King James says, exist. We exist, we move, we live in him. I think that means God wraps around us and sees to the living and the moving and the existing. He, he makes it happen. He holds it. Um, let me skip over Second Peter. We can look at that. Job, if he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. So God is actively preserving by spirit life. Same Psalm 104. The animals all wait for thee. We're going to talk maybe next time. I'm not sure. I haven't got next week worked out yet. But we're going to, I'm going to deal with the providences in the inanimate realm, providences in the animal realm, providences among nations, providences in family life, providences in church and human decision. So here's animals, a little foretaste. The animals wait for thee to give them their food in due season. Thou dost give them, uh, they gather it up. They, now just think of this. Does it remind you of any teachings of Jesus? He gives them their food. Matthew 6, the uh, birds, the lilies. Well, it looks like the birds work pretty hard for their food. They, that's all they do is collect food as far as I can tell. They're either building a nest or collecting food. And, and the Bible says God is giving it to them. God is involved in that. You should marvel at God when you see, when you see a bird get a little piece of string or pull a worm or walk around cocking his head like this, like he can't see, and then choo, gets what he wants. Thou dost hide thy face, they are dismayed. Thou dost take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. Thou dost send forth thy spirit, they are created. And thou dost renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Closing. Just about right here. we got four, four minutes by my watch. Implications. I've got six. We'll read them quickly. This is what I hope you can take away as practical 
value of doing what we're going to be doing, what we've done some tonight and what we're going to do more of. Why? What, what good is it and what difference will it make in our lives? Because theology that doesn't make any difference, I'm not interested in. God's providence provides a basis for science since the results of experimentation today will very likely be the same tomorrow. Now, many scientists who don't believe in God would not attribute the regularity of natural laws to God and his sustaining providence. But if you believe the text we just looked at, then you must say, ultimately, God makes science possible. God is the one who keeps gravity being gravity instead of, when I do this, it, it doesn't do that. If God were to just change his mind slightly, gravity would make this go up. And he could make plastic go up and flesh stay down. He could make hair go up and whatever. You know, he could, any day he wanted to, he could switch it around. And therefore, the constancy of the world that makes science possible, which makes all the things that we take for granted, lights like this, marvelous little machine, is owing to God's providence. Another way to put it would be, it also gives the basis for technology since I can be relatively certain that gasoline that starts my car today will start it tomorrow. So if you're a person working in technology, you're trying to figure out something. You know, let me give you, it, it just might be a measurable moment. If any of you knows connections with inventors, I want to suggest an invention. And if you take it and get the patent for it and make a million dollars, fine. Just tithe. <laughs> but here's what. You go to a worship conference, you know, this is odd. Do you know one of the main topics of discussion at worship conferences these days? It's obviously how to do contemporary and traditional. That's but they're trying to figure out how to project words so people can see them. You go to any conference. Now here, we project those words. The people sitting over there can't see them, sitting over there can't see them, sitting over there. We need a screen right there, just above those bars, and we need a screen right there, and we need it to be back projected. There's not enough space back there with contemporary technology to back project. In my mind, it would be a piece of cake for the guy who designed this machine to figure out a way within a space of that far to have a screen, not with a bar down the middle at the back, but with bars down the side. That's easy. No, anybody can do that. And then a screen, I mean, a gizmo like this, or something like it, which can sit two feet behind it and do that so that the letters can be this big and up there. Those things don't exist right now. That is not beyond anybody's technological possibility to, to, to project on a screen two feet away uh, letters that are six feet wide. I mean, uh, the sentences that are six feet wide. If you, if you invented that, or if you went to some Minneapolis invention agency and said, do that, there's a market out there, and I, it's not just, in, there are, there are 10,000 churches that would buy that, I think, tomorrow, if it were not $10 million, you know, if it were a few hundred dollars, or maybe even more. And I would guess, not knowing the business world, that there are a lot of rooms where businesses want backlit stuff for corporate boards, and they can't fit it in the room. So, close princess, why did I even get on that? Um, technology. God makes that sort of thinking possible. Three. My time is up. This is reading real fast. You're free to leave if you need to leave. It means that the continuity of our personality and body and mind hangs on God. That I am the same person today that I was yesterday is owing to the choice and act of God moment by moment to hold me in being as much as if I were recreated continually. Thus, all moral accountability that I have today for the act I did yesterday is dependent on God's sustaining, unifying providence. Now, that's a heavy, and I'd love to talk about it, but we should, number four, we should be humbled and made to feel how utterly fragile and dependent we are. Five, we should be made grateful that our life, not just at the beginning, but moment by moment is a free gift that we are not owed. And finally, we should be made confident and joyful that one who loves us so much that, we, that he would give his son to save us will use all his wisdom 
and all his power and involvement in our lives to work all things together for our good. Ultimately, the reason I care about teaching you about this doctrine is joy and confidence and living, risk-taking, radical, loving Christian lives come what may because you believe that God is so massively, wonderfully in control that not a hair of your head will perish, not even when your head is cut off. Father, dismiss us with minds of understanding and hearts of gratitude and humility and faith. Make us a confident people in your love, which has behind it all the force of providence and in your providence with ha which has behind it all the force of love. Thank you so much for this great reality and for your being and your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.